So, so Luke preached here last weekend, and I preached over at the Olsons last weekend. And uh, we, so we preached on the same thing, same passage. We were, you know, we talked about humility. And I don't know how, how Luke did, but uh, basically I got taught a lesson in humility as I was preaching on humility. It's kind of funny how that tends to happen. And uh, I have a group of guys that's been meeting on Thursday nights talking about the passages um, ahead of time as we're teaching as we're teaching them, and um, one of the guys was like, it's a good thing you're preaching on humility, Sam. I'm not humble enough to preach on humility. And I thought, that's actually, I think, a prerequisite for preaching on humility is knowing that you're not humble enough to preach on humility. So, like, I went into last week thinking, like, I kind of got this, and then, (laughs) bam. So, I'm not humble enough to preach on humility. I just want to confess that to you all today. And yet, there I was, preaching on humility. And so it, I think it's a good, uh, it's a good reminder, uh, not only of the fact that, that as preachers and as teachers, we're teaching things that we, um, that we know and things that we believe, that, but also recognizing the fact that we're still human and that we're all pursuing this together. Uh, and so as we preach about unity, generosity, uh, we're not preaching from a, a, place, of, um, a place of holiness, we're preaching from a p- place of brokenness. And so that's just a good reminder for all of us that, that we are in this together. We're all broken human beings, and we're all pursuing holiness together. That's a, it was a good reminder for me, so I thought I'd share that. Uh, so as we continue on this year of biblical literacy, this journey that we're on through um, the scriptures, our goal is transformation, right? We view the scriptures as formational, and as we do that, and as we submit ourselves to them, then we are transformed. Uh, but what we're looking at from Genesis to Revelation is the faithful presence and witness of Jesus. And you're like, well, what about the Old Testament? Yes, we talked about that a lot, didn't we? The gospel that we saw and the faithful presence and witness of Jesus all through the Old Testament. The point of all of this Again, from last September, starting in Genesis, all the way through this September, when we finish in Revelation, um, the goal of all of this is to point each other, to point ourselves, and to point those around us to Jesus. And that's what, like, Jesus is true north, right? If, if we're looking for a compass, we're looking for a direction that we're supposed to go, Jesus is true north. And so that's, he's the north star, he's the waypoint uh, by which we know the direction that we're going. And so this is what the New Testament writers were doing. As we walk through uh, the, the, the writings of Paul, the writings of Peter, the writings of James, and all the different guys that wrote the letters, the epistles, we recognize that this is what they're doing. Uh, as we've tackled each of these individual ideas, the idea of unity, the idea of generosity, the idea of forgiveness, right, the idea of humility, each of these things we see in their writings as they're trying to point themselves and point the people around them to Jesus they tackle these ideas. And so we have, um, you can see these cultural things that they're, that they're talking about in their attempts to point people to Jesus. Like uh, there were Gentiles that were coming to know Christ and, and there was Jewish Christians that were having a hard time accepting the Gentile Christians because culturally they lived different. And so they had different religious practices as a part of their faith and Jesus. And so there was conflict there. And so they, they took this idea in the book of Acts. We saw this, this conflict being taken before the apostles in this council in Jerusalem. And out of that council, we see that because of Jesus, 
Jews and Gentiles can have what? Unity, right? So they can have unity. And so then the church begins to live together and to grow closer together uh, in this unity. And so what we saw then was as they grew in unity that they had everything in common. And then they grew in what? Generosity. We can track this through the writings in the New Testament. These ideas, as they're pointing each other to Jesus, we see these things take place. As they continue to face conflict, that they have a chance, and they are growing in forgiveness, right? Uh, and then we looked at the idea in Philippians last week, this idea that because of Jesus, we are becoming more humble. This mind of humility we see in Jesus and has been given to us in Jesus to put others and count others as more important than ourselves. And so we see this idea, but all of it is pointing us back to Jesus, right? These things, all of these things are implications of the gospel. This is a really important distinction as we talk about um, topical subjects that we see in the scriptures. It's important for us to remind ourselves that these are implications of the gospel, not prerequisites for the gospel. Does that make sense? Like we are not Christians because we do these things. We are Christians because of what Christ has done, and he has given us transformed hearts, and then because we are believers in Jesus and followers of Jesus, we then grow in these things. It's a massive difference. It seems small, it seems like we're splitting hairs, but it's actually a massive difference. Because if we view Christianity as we do these things, therefore we are Christians, we can then place ourselves in the exact same position that the Pharisees were in. Right? The Pharisees that actually killed Jesus because he told them, you think you're holy because you do these things. And I'm telling you, you're not. And they killed him for it. And so we can see, if we're honest, we can see, if we've been Christians for any amount of time at all, we can see that tendency start to grow inside of us. And we can see it start to grow around us. And if we watch the Pharisees, if we watch um, the, the Jews that killed Jesus, we can see that inside of ourselves. We can see that tendency start to grow inside ourselves, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew in them to the point where they as a nation rejected the Holy One that was actually there to save them. Because this idea that I do, therefore I am, had become so central in their identity as individuals and as a culture and as a nation. And so we have to ask ourselves the same question. Are these things a part of our life? And do we draw identity from them? Or do we draw our identity in Jesus? And then therefore, these things start to play out in our lives because of our identity in Jesus. It's a massive difference. Like it's, if you've ever stood on the south rim of the Grand Canyon and looked across, you can barely see the other side. That's how far apart these two things are, right? Probably farther than that, but that's a good illustration. They're not splitting hairs. It's a huge difference. So today, we are going to talk about because of Jesus, we can have gratitude, or we can give thanks because of Jesus. Again, we are not thankful, therefore we are good Christians. We are grateful because of what Jesus has done. Huge difference. So we have to ask an idea, because as Americans, uh, we forget that Thanksgiving is an American holiday. Not, a, like, not everybody celebrates Thanksgiving. And I think Canada celebrates Thanksgiving, but they celebrate at a completely different time of year. They have their own Thanksgiving. But we have to ask this question. Is Thanksgiving for us, or is this idea of gratitude for us, a cultural concept? Right? Because I think if we're honest, as Americans, when we think of gratitude, we think of 
turkeys, pilgrims, Indians, cranberry sauce, you know, whatever football games, whatever it is that your tradition, but we think of a cultural thing when we think of the idea of Thanksgiving. Or is it something deeper? Is our gratitude drawn from a sense of who God is and what he has done? Because again, they're not the same thing. There's a cultural idea that's been adopted by a, by a nation, if we're honest, has a lot to be thankful, but it's probably one of the least thankful groups of people that we've seen in a long time. Our culture is not one of thanksgiving. Our, our culture that we live in right now is not one that has a lot of gratitude. We have a lot of entitlement, right? We believe very deeply in our rights that we're entitled to. We don't spend a lot of time giving thanks for the freedoms that we have. And yet we have this cultural, um, this cultural phenomenon that is thanksgiving. And so our challenge today, and as we look at the scriptures, is to have grateful hearts, not one day a week, right? We get so, as Christians, we're like, how dare Black Friday invade Thanksgiving? Well, like, maybe we should focus more on living out our gratitude 365 days a year and not be so indignant over the fact that one day uh, that is a national holiday gets invaded by the world. Of course it gets invaded by the world. We should live as grateful followers of Jesus every day of the year, not one day out of the year. There's much to be thankful for. So like generosity, we talked about this a few weeks ago, we have unity, and so generosity flows out of unity, right? So last week we talked about humility, and so gratitude actually flows out of humility. It flows out of humility. Uh, Meister Eckhart a German theologian said, if the only prayer you ever said in your whole life was thank you, that would suffice. Henry Ward Beecher said, pride slays thanksgiving, but a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grow. So think about that. A humble mind is fertile soil for gratitude. And think about the fact that this guy, this German theologian, Meister Eckhart, said that if the only prayer you ever said in your whole life was thank you, that would suffice. Now we can go through the Lord's Prayer and see that the way Jesus taught us to pray wasn't just thanksgiving, but the point, like the point takes hold, doesn't it? If we spent more time giving thanks, not only would we never run out of things to be thankful for, and we would never run out of things to pray for, but our, um, our asks of God would change drastically. If we were praying and asking God things from a position of gratitude... Our prayers, everything about our prayers would change drastically. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2 and see what Paul's teaching them about this idea, okay? Starting in 1, and we're going to work our way through verse 8. He starts with this. Now, real quick, Paul's writing to a church, a church plant in Corinth that he didn't start. And so he's been in contact with the guy that did start the church, and this guy's telling him, man, they're doing great, um, they're doing really well, but... Um, that they're, they're, they're facing pressure and temptation um, to both embrace the law from the, the Jewish Christians and to embrace the pagan culture by the, the world that they're living in. So they're being pulled in different directions. They're feeling pressure from these different directions, but they're doing pretty well. And so um, Paul writes to them, and he starts this way in chapter 2. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. That's a different city. And for all who have not seen my face, seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. 
So in chapter 1, he had told them about his imprisonment and all of his struggles, struggles and his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. And he wants them to know that even though they haven't met, his suffering for the sake of the gospel is by extension also for their sake as well. So he's telling them, I'm here, I'm in prison, I'm suffering. And by extension, my suffering for the gospel is also suffering for your sake as well. And so he says, I write this to you so that you may be encouraged that we're knit together in love. Okay? As we are bound by the love of Jesus, he's saying that the love of Jesus is a thread that knits us together into one body. We are knit together through the love of Jesus. And then he says uh, that your hearts may be encouraged to reach all the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, your understanding of Jesus in the gospel is not just formed intellectually. Right? Like our understanding of the gospel and acceptance of the gospel is intellectual, but not exclusively intellectual. We have been invited by the scriptures to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? Our mind is very involved. But what Paul is saying here is that it doesn't end there. It's not purely an intellectual belief. It's not purely by grasping propositional truth, but we experience his love. And one of the ways, one of the biggest ways that we his ex- experience his love is through each other. So Paul's inviting them to, to be encouraged in the gospel through his love for them, even though they've never met. He says, even though I don't know you, I've never met you, we are knit together with the love of Jesus. We experience the love of Jesus as we live amongst the body, as we are knit together more and more and more in love. One of the clearest passages that we see this in is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Where Paul says, you can have this, you can have everything that you, like think about, you know, your, you know your, all of your examples of what it means to be awesome in this Christian faith. And you can have all of those things and it doesn't count for anything if you don't have love. And he goes through this long list and we, you read, hear it read at every single wedding that you've ever attended, right? Paul's simple point is, if you don't have love, none of it counts for anything. And he's saying that again here, encouraging them that they are knit together in love. And this is where their faith is ground. And this is where their faith stands firm in their love. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You see that? They're knit together in love. And so, because they're knit together in love and they can encourage one another in this, he says they're bound together. And so, because this is their foundation, their identity in Christ and their love for one another is their foundation, he says, um, I want you to be reminded of this so that you are not deluded with plausible arguments. So their defense of their faith, he says right here, is not simply their intellectual knowledge, but it's their experience of love from Jesus and through each other as they're knit together in the body. So the idea here is he wants them to know his sufferings on their behalf that they might be more deeply unified and knit together in love. The purpose of him saying this and encouraging them is so that they won't be led astray. Right? He doesn't say, now, here's the truth. Right? He doesn't enter into a debate with all these people that are trying to delude them. He just says, I'm rem- 
reminding them that I'm sacrificing on your behalf for the sake of the gospel so that you will not be led astray. It's a different way of, it's a different way of fighting for the truth, isn't it? So, the danger these young Christians are facing, I want you to listen to this closely and see if it sounds familiar, okay? The danger they're facing is, number one, fake morality, and number two, worldly temptation. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Like, this is everything that we are tempted by today. Fake morality, this is what we, how we would, um, the, probably the easiest way that we could do this would be, um, look how godly and beautiful I am on Instagram, Look at how enraged I am at injustice on Facebook, right? That's fake morality. 90% of the time it's fake morality because it's not really a part of our lives. It's just something that we, that we post to build an identity of ourselves. It's fake morality. And then we have worldly temptation, right? That part of ourselves that we would never post on social media, but the things that our hearts are drawn to, right? And the things that the world actually celebrates, we can identify with this church in Colossae. We can identify with the fact that we are pulled constantly towards these two things. Paul continues in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Right? We talked about this in our, our group of guys as we met on Thursday nights. We, we just talked about this passage for like an hour. And one of the things that we identified was, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And there's this idea in our Christian faith that, yeah, 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 we need to accept that Jesus died for us, but we've got to move beyond that, right? We've got to move into mature faith. We've got to know things like soteriology and angelology and pneumatology and, and all these other uh, more mature Christian ideas. And yet Paul says right here, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't ever move beyond the simplicity of the fact that Jesus loves you and he died for you and there's nothing that you did to earn it or receive it. And so you can bask in that as a human and you can find humility, you can find unity, you can find generosity, you can find forgiveness. Everything that we're talking about is found in the simplistic gospel. So Paul says, walk in this. Yes, these things are good. We'll pursue these things, but never move beyond the simplicity of the gospel, that Jesus loves you. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by, by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here's the progression. Okay, and this is really amazing and it's really simple and it's really profound. The progression is this. You were taught the truth in Christ. You received him as Lord. Jesus is Lord of all, right? Someone taught you that. You believed it in faith and now you're growing and you're rooted in this. It's vine imagery, right? The, the, the vine is, is planted, rooted, and growing in the soil and it's growing into something mature. But it never moves beyond being a vine that's owned by the vine dresser, right? It's built up and established. And here it is. You should live as you were taught, believing and rooted in the gospel in Jesus. And the result is that you will be abounding in thanksgiving. The NIV says it this way, verse six. So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. Right? So he says the result of knowing Jesus should be 
thanksgiving, the, the, the result of living a life in the gospel, of continuing to follow Jesus just as you met Jesus, should result in an overflowing of thanksgiving. Why is he telling them this? This is important. Why is he saying this to them? To guard against error. To guard against deceit. So again, the, the defense against deceit isn't uh, rebuttal with truth. The defense against deceit for us is thanksgiving. Rootedness in the gospel that overflows with thanksgiving. That's what he says is the defense of the gospel. Romans 12.1. We can see this all throughout the scriptures and we can just connect them, right? Romans 12.1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We can see the, like, we see the progression here that Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. And in Romans 12.1, we see the opposite, the reversal of that progression, right? There's a cognitive recognizing of who God is but a refusal to honor him as God, refusal to give him his proper place, and a refusal to give thanks for him, to him. And the result is, they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. It's just a, simply a reversal of what we're reading here in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with what? Thanksgiving. Okay, we're watchful in prayer with thanksgiving, and it guards us against error. It guards us against deceit. Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus. And then Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. See, the opposite of all of these different things is what? Thanksgiving. Not only in your prayer life, not only in the way that you interact with others. This idea, filthiness, crude talk, can you imagine, right? We all have jobs, we all go to work, and, or we all interact with people. Can you imagine in the moments when you're experiencing gossip, right? I, I've never experienced water cooler talk. Like, is that an actual thing, or was that like in the 80s? where everybody would go hang around the water cooler and be like, hey, what's up, you know? Is that, st- I don't think that's a thing. I think that's a, like a created thing for maybe office space and it just never, like, I've never experienced that. But we know the idea of it, right? And whoever is not at the water cooler is the one that's being talked about. Can you imagine if we entered into those spaces and just refused to enter into the banter, but just simply entered into the banter instead of joining in the trash talk about what a trash employee and what a trash person Bob is. Can you imagine if we walked into that conversation and said, you know what I'm thankful for about Bob? Right? We don't walk into the conversation rebuking all the trash talk about Bob. We walk into the conversation with Thanksgiving for Bob and watch how that transforms the conversation in the room. It's just a different way of combating error. But that's what Paul is fighting for, which the New Testament is fighting for again and again and again. It's a protective act. We can protect protect ourselves and we can protect others. It guards against false teaching. It guards against the pressures of the world. It guards against anxiety. It guards against crude talk. It's participation in the Spirit through the fruit of the Spirit, right? This is what Galatians said. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You're like, where's thankfulness? Listen, joy is not complete until we do what? Until we rejoice, right? And isn't giving thanks a synonym for rejoicing? It's not enough to just, uh, to just acknowledge it. We have to experience it. See, there's the intellectual and the, the experiential. We're invited into both. This is not duty, right? This is not what we tell, tell our kids. Like, and hopefully, even when we tell our kids, like, you better be thankful. There's kids in Africa that would die for that rice, right? That's totally true, and we should say that to our kids. But we should say it, and we should remind them of those truths in a way that invites them into something, not gives them a duty. Bitterness takes root. Fight it with gratitude. Doubt. Fight it with gratitude. See, all of these errors are fought and defended against through this idea of overflowing with thanksgiving. Uh, Harry Iron said, we would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Are we whiners? Kind of. I mean, at times. Like, I, I don't, we don't need to sit here and be like, you yeah, we suck. But we, we, we can tend to go to that place, right? And if we think about it, we understand that this truth that we're reading in the scriptures is totally true. That all of these things, error, anxiety, worry, filthiness, crude talk, all of these things are combated through thanksgiving. Hebrews 12. Right? The writer of Hebrews, right, Hebrews 12, 12, right after Hebrews 11, if you've ever read Hebrews 11, he goes through all these people, like these heroes of the faith that were like crucified and sawn in two and thrown into pits. And then in Hebrews 12, he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what he's saying is, when we're in suffering, when we're in anxiety, when we're feeling the pressure from all around us, the way that we find our rootedness in the gospel is through gratitude. Some of you know um, this guy. Uh, he's kind of a weirdo, but also says some things that are really true. His name is Ben Greenfield. He's like super into fitness and like he does a lot of weird stuff. But I listened to a podcast with him a couple weeks ago. And at the end of the podcast, the guy interviewing him said, if there were three, if there were three things um, that you wanted to pass on to your kids, like truths, out of all the knowledge you've gained about longevity, that's his big theme, how to live a long life, like longevity, you know, through physical endurance, through fitness, through diet, all of these things he does. And he said, number one was his faith. And number two, he said to live a life of gratitude to live a life of gratitude. He said medical studies have across the board have shown that living a life of gratitude does more things for you as a human biologically and spiritually than hardly anything else. He said, he said all this stuff that I talk about, eating blueberries and all of these different the ways that you can uh, you know, increase your odds of living a longer life, more than any of those is to simply live a life of gratitude. And my first thought was, well, why don't you write a book on that then instead of writing a book on all this crap? right? Anyhow, I digress. 
it was, I just thought it was really important that he spent an entire hour and a half talking about all these things. And then at the end, it was like, what's the most important thing? And he was like, knowing Jesus and living a life of gratitude. Bam, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Gratitude. It's a powerful, powerful, powerful weapon. Like that's how we have to view it. We give thanks to guard ourselves against error, all kinds of error. It attacks from all sides. So here we go. Number one, Paul says to protect ourselves from arguments, philosophies, empty deceit, right? All of these things that will darken our mind and lead us away from God. We do this by being knit together with love and overflowing with gratitude. The antidote to the materialism, right? What's the antidote to, to materialism? It's not more money, right? It's gratitude. The antidote to bitterness and anger against the people who have wronged you, right? So we have unity, we have generosity. Uh, the antidote to bitterness is uh, gratitude for what the, the forgiveness that we've been given in Jesus so that then we can give forgiveness to others. The antidote to, the antidote to worry and anxiety over life, sickness, and danger isn't to create a safer bubble around ourselves and our kids. It's gratitude for every breath that we take and for the health that we do have. Isn't it funny that we see gratitude in places where there shouldn't be any? You ever find that interesting? Like the people that, the people that don't have their health or health are thank, more thankful for the health they have than we are thankful for the health, the, the extreme health that most of us do have? Like having more of something doesn't make you more thankful for it. We have to fight for Thanksgiving. Before you complain about your job and how it isn't great, maybe you should give thanks for the job you have. This has the power to change us as we walk in the gospel, understanding and giving thanks for the love, for the unity, for the generosity we've been shown, the forgiveness that we've been given, the humility that Christ showed in going to the cross. All of these things should flow out of our thanksgiving. Habakkuk chapter 3. This is one of those really boring Old Testament books that nobody likes to read, and yet we find profound truths. Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Right? Everything goes south. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. This is someone who is fighting for the idea of gratitude. And it defends against loss. It defends against bitterness. It defends against materialism. It defends against worry and anxiety. It defends against deceit and error. To walk in gratitude. To walk in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we come before you collectively here in Staten. We come before you collectively in Sio. We come before you collectively in our individual homes as we gather together through the technology that you blessed us with. Collectively, collectively, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would remind us of who you are and what you have done. 
that you would remind us that our identity is drawn and grounded and rooted in you. And that our hearts would overflow with gratitude because of that. And Father, I pray that we would fight for that, that we would fight for gratitude to guard against all kinds of errors because of the truth that we know and the truth that we believe and the truth that we experience. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name, amen.